Thank you, Cindy. <clears throat> okay, yeah, so Kingdom Justice Part 3 of 4. That's what we're tackling today, a series called Kingdom Justice. This is Part 3 of 4. Uh, next week, we've got a guest speaker coming in to talk about justice for the sexually exploited. Uh, uh, Corey Nichols from Destiny Rescue is coming in to talk about how the gospel is pushing their organization to rescue uh, young children out of human trafficking and, and what the church can be doing about it. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about justice for the unborn. And what that means is we're going to be talking about abortion. Difficult topic of abortion. Since Roe v. Wade, many of you guys know this, since Roe v. Wade, 63 million unborn babies have been aborted. That's since 1973. That does not include those killed in the states prior to that. Uh, through the state uh, laws um, allowing it. It does, obviously doesn't include uh, more abortions around the world. 63 million. Uh, I talked last week about justice for the poor and how it was difficult to talk about that because we don't always agree on what the solutions should be, but at least we agree that the, those who are in poverty need to be helped. At least we agree on that. But when it comes to this topic, it's difficult because people argue uh, uh, there's an injustice, but they argue from opposite sides. On one side are those who would say this is an injustice against babies' lives that are being snuffed out, 63 million lives that have been snuffed out, and their lives need to be protected, and their lives, the, the, the value of their life supersedes the right of anybody else's right to a, a health decision or a right for somebody to do what they want with their body. The right to life supersedes that. And then others argue on the other side that, no, 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 a woman has the right to choose and a woman should have the right to do what she wants with her body and, and that's a health choice and that supersedes any man or any government telling her what to do. And so both sides argue vehemently about this being uh, a justice issue. Um, so I, I've got three purposes today that I pray or have been praying would be accomplished somehow by God's grace. Number one, to persuade pro-choice people to change their views. That's one. I'm going to be very clear on that. Um, uh, my hope is that some change their views. And there's different uh, extremes. Some, some would say that, um, you know, I, I'm for it and I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I, I think uh, um, it's, it's totally fine. Abortion's totally fine. Others would say, I'm not for it, but I think somebody should have the right and I shouldn't tell somebody what to do and the government shouldn't tell somebody what to do. So there's different, uh, you know, d degrees that somebody's at on, on that continuum. Um, and and that's a, it's not just, you know, p political liberals or Democrats. There's conservative Republicans who would say, I'm pro-choice because I don't think the government should be involved. I'm small government and the government shouldn't be involved in that. So it, it's different, different, you know, political ideals that still line up as pro-choice. And I hope to change your view. I hope God changes your view. Number two, I hope to inspire those who have had abortions to receive forgiveness and grace. Jesus is a God of grace and forgiveness, and some of you who have had abortions have experienced that. We're going to end with two testimonies today from people who have experienced God's forgiveness. We're going to pray for those who want to uh, experience his forgiveness and grace, who have been wrestling with shame and guilt. And then lastly, number three, to convince pro-life people that their attitudes, whether self-righteous or Christ-like, will determine whether those first two goals happen at least in our church community. I want us to be a church that's real careful about how we discuss this topic in the lobby and in the hallway and after service. 
many of you guys, or all of you guys, should have gotten, as you walked in, this, this bulletin from the Open Door Pregnancy Center, which is a pregnancy center we support. Uh, as you see, there are nearly 4 in 10 women who have had abortions regularly attend church. And that means that women in here have had abortions, and women in here may be considering it. And how we talk about this, whether we talk about it in a self-righteous way, whether we talk about it in, in, in the hallway and somebody overhearing that may determine whether they feel comfortable sharing, hey, I've had an abortion in the past. I want to experience God's grace and forgiveness. I want to talk to somebody about this. But how you guys just uh, talked about it with each other in your little circle and calling those people baby killers and whatnot, I, I can't stay here and be safe and feel safe. So we want to be real careful about how we talk about this. What we post on social media. And now listen, some of you might be saying, well, we are that kind of church, Chris. We are the kind of church that wants to care for those who have either had abortions or considering it. And, and I would say, yes, we are. But what we, how we communicate can send the opposite message sometimes. So I'm going to start with that one. I'm going to start with my appeal to pro-life folks. And I'm one of them. I'm on that side of calling myself a pro-life folk. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2. This is a passage that I ended with two weeks ago uh, in my intro to the Justice series. Just making the case that God's a God of justice. Ephesians chapter 2 says this. We're starting in verse 1. It says, as for you, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Ephesus, Jews and Gentiles. As for you, you were dead in your trans transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, Paul's saying, all of us. Now, he was a Pharisee. He was a Jewish Pharisee. He obeyed the law of Moses to a T, and yet he said all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. So what's Paul saying? He's saying that all of us, that's all of humanity, were dead in our sins and we were deserving of God's wrath. All of us. Jew, yes. Gentile, yes. Those who don't go to church, yes. Deserving of God's wrath. What about those who do go to church? Yes. Deserving of God's wrath. What about those who don't read the Bible? Yes. Those who do read the Bible? Yes. By nature, all of us, whether we're churchgoers, Bible readers, or even praying. People say, oh, I pray to God. That's great. Pagans prayed to God, and they're headed for eternity. This is what Paul's saying. Headed for eternity, even those who pray, headed for eternity, separated from the presence of God. That's what Paul's saying here. That's what many verses in the Bible says. Deserving of God's wrath. Now, many... Christians, evangelicals would say, yes, amen, I get this. We are saved by faith in Jesus alone. Yes, amen, we're saved by his grace. I'm not saved by my church going or my volunteering. Amen. But on the issue of abortion, this is when sometimes Christians can start to puff out their chest a little bit and start to look down their noses at those who have a different view or have been through it, who have committed abortion. They start to look down our nose as if somehow there's been a line that separates like Jews from Gentiles and we start to get a little proud and we start to get a little self-righteous and sometimes can send the message that there's a lot of sins God will forgive but not that one. 
And sometimes we can send the message that we are not just saved by grace, we're saved by our pro-life views. We can send the message that we have forgotten by what we post on social media. Those pro-choice people are deserving of hell. Well, pro-life people are deserving of hell as well. That's what this passage is saying. The person who committed abortion headed for eternity without God on their own. So is the person who's running a pregnancy center. Headed for eternity unless some miracle happens. All in the same boat. What's that miracle? His great love for us. God in his mercy makes us alive with Christ. He opens our eyes to see Jesus for who Jesus is. He wakes us up spiritually. He wakes us up spiritually. And everybody needs this miracle. The person who's had an abortion and the person who's the director of a pregnancy center saving babies' lives, they all need this miracle to happen. Otherwise, they're destined for God's wrath. That's what Paul's saying. That's what we need to remember. That's what us pro-life folks need to remember. So there is no boasting. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. Through faith, This is not from yourselves, the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We don't get to boast. Now, of course, murder and killing any human life is worse than, say, credit card fraud. Of course. There are certain sins that are more damaging to society and life than other sins, and so murder is certainly at the top of that list. But we're not getting into heaven by avoiding murder. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have said to the religious leaders that they're destined, that they're children of the devil. And he wouldn't have said that David and Moses and Samson were men of faith. So murder doesn't count us out, and the avoidance of murder doesn't get us in. And I know many of you would say in your head you agree, but how we communicate, like I said earlier, how we communicate in the lobbies at church, how we communicate on social media can send the opposite message. And so if you consider yourself pro-life, be really careful, please, that you're representing the gospel, the gospel of Jesus. Now, again, I know that our church, for the most part, does this. And, and, and we're willing to put our money where our mouth is. We're willing to come alongside of young, scared women and couples. We're willing to walk alongside, sponsor them. We're willing to foster and adopt. Many of you guys have done that. Many of you guys have taken young mothers under your wing. You've taken babies into your home. You've cared for them so that the mothers can get their life together. You've done this. So I, 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 please don't hear me kind of shaming anybody. I just say, be careful how you communicate. Because while you're doing those great things, you can also uh, unwillingly or unintentionally send the message that we are saved by avoiding abortion. And that is not the case. Okay? All right, part two. Appealing to pro-choice folks. I want to try to change your views. Um, let me acknowledge for, for you... Those who consider themselves pro-choice, um, let me acknowledge to you that I, I, I realize that um, you have seen Christians talk about abortion at times as if that's the only issue to care about while avoiding and dismissing other social issues that you believe God has talked about. And I, I've seen the hypocrisy as well. If, if you came to Christ, you grew up in the church in the late 70s and 80s, you probably saw Christians or politicians talk against abortion while being for segregation, or at least okay with it. And it's like, wait, what, what the, the inconsistency and the hypocrisy there? 
So I get it. I want to acknowledge that there's hypocrisy. But I also want to challenge you not to be guilty of that same kind of hypocrisy. And that's what I want to address here. There's a lot of scriptures I'm not going to share because one of the testimonies stole the scriptures I would have used. So you'll see that in a little bit. She was sharing them. I was like, dang, I was going to use all that, but she'll get to it. So I just want to try to um, point out four reasons why I think you should be against abortion. Um, First of all, progressives should be against abortion. If you consider yourself a progressive, you should absolutely be uh, against abortion if you are going to be intellectually honest and consistent and not a hypocrite. Um, 1973, we did not have the science we do now. We didn't have the science we do now. We, we, we could argue uh, philosophically and biblically that life was life, but we didn't have the science that we do now. And now we have science to show what happens at eight weeks. Now we know at eight weeks a little baby can be sucking its thumb. We know that it has its own blood. We, we, we know this because of the progress of science. We know that if you prick its heel, it recoils, it feels that pain. We know this now. And so for a progressive to be intellectually honest, uh, th- they would say, yes, the science is telling us what God has been saying all along, which is that you, were, you created my inmost being. This is Psalm 139. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. That's psalmist saying, God saw me as an unborn and said, "Mm, I've got a plan for you. You're valuable to me. And now science is just backing that up more and more, saying, yeah, yeah, that's a life. That's a life ordained by God. That's a life with, with a plan. I believe there's coming a day when people will look back and go, how barbaric those people in the 20th century and the early 21st century were allowing these practices, allowing these unborn lives to be ripped to pieces and vacuumed out and uh, limbs torn off. How barbaric and archaic that was. What a practice. And, and, and true progressives will follow the science and go, man, thank God we've progressed away from that. And so the question is, when our grandkids look back, will they see you and me? Will they see us and go, well, think my granddaddy and my grandmommy, they were, they were part of the fight against that. They were standing up for those little babies. Or will they say, well, they were kind of like really on the sidelines saying, let's let everybody make their own decision. Were they in the fight or were they not? So true progressives will be against abortion. Number two, if you believe the government was right in outlawing slavery and segregation, you should be against abortion. I sometimes hear folks say that they're not a fan of abortion personally, but the government shouldn't tell a woman what to do with her body. Now listen, I don't want the government meddling in my life unnecessarily either, and I think people should have the freedom, as I said in, in, in week one, People should have the freedom to sin and make stupid mistakes without the the government um, meddling in that. But there's a difference between legislating morality and protecting a vulnerable group from an injustice. There's a big difference. Like I I can get drunk at my house and I think that'd be a sin, but the government allows me to do that. And I think they should. But the government draws the line with me getting behind the wheel when I'm drunk, right? 
So we would all agree that there's a point where I don't get to do what I want with my body and my property. And we can give many other examples. Most people who claim to be pro-choice are also those who tend to believe strongly that the government should prevent and prosecute uh, discriminatory practices. Racial discrimination in schools and businesses. They say, yes, the government should stop that. But then when it comes to abortion, well, the government, they should be hands off. In the mid-1800s, during the Civil War, there was a pro-choice group of people. They believed that you should have the right to choose what you do with your property. Government should stay out of that. In principle, I would agree, except they were applying that to slaves. Slaves are my property. I get to do what I want with, their, with them. So for them, for many in the South who own slaves, they called it a justice issue. The federal government should stay out of it. Abraham Lincoln is a tyrant for trying to take away my property. And by taking away my property, my slave, my asset, they're taking away bread and butter from my kid's dinner table. That's how it was being framed. And that's the same argument for many pro-choice folks. The government should stay out of this. They don't have a right to tell me what to do with my body. And I would argue that anyone who would say that they have the right to kill another human being and puts it under the category of it's my property or my body or whatever, it's the same argument slave owners used. Slaves were not three-fifths of a person. They were fully human. Unborn babies are not partial human beings. They're fully human. We don't have the right to do what we want with either. Thank God slavery was abolished. If you agree that that was the right move and that the government should have abolished it and protect the life of African Americans, then to be consistent in your views and not be a hypocrite, you should also believe that the government, at the least, should protect life. And that's not forcing religion on anyone. I had a friend a few months ago say that the, you know, after the overturning of Roe v. Wade, this is Christians forcing their religious views on society. William Wilberforce, many of you know that name, he was a leader in parliament. He helped push the abolition of slavery in Great Britain in the late 1700s. He was criticized as someone trying to force his Christian views on public policy. Now we look back and even atheists look back and go, that wasn't William Wilberforce forcing Christian morality on public policy. That was justice. And I think there's coming a day when we look back and they're going to say, that wasn't Christians just trying to force their moral codes on society. That was justice. That was justice. Martin Luther King said this, Morality cannot be legislated, but behavior can be regulated. Judicial decrees may not change the heart, but they can restrain the heartless. There's a place for government policy. It's not the ultimate answer, but it does matter. Ideally, racist hearts would have turned into loving, inclusive hearts in the South, but in the meantime, Martin Luther King was fighting for policies to restrain those racist hearts to stop the lynching, to stop the segregation. Thankfully, there was legislation passed that allowed this girl, Elizabeth Eckerd, to go to school in Little Rock, Arkansas, with a screaming racist mob behind her. She didn't have to wait for their hearts to change to get into that school. There was policy that changed first. So don't take the moderate position of, well, I'm not really for abortion, but I don't think I should tell anybody else, or the government should tell anybody. 
Martin Luther King said, the biggest danger to civil rights for black Americans was not the racists, it was the moderate whites who were not willing to get in the fight. We just kept saying, slow down, eventually I'm with you, but eventually let's slow down. Don't be moderate on this. Abraham Lincoln was once moderate. He said, I just don't want slavery to expand. I'm not for it, but let's not be too hard against it. And then he changed, thankfully. His views changed on that. So if you, okay, let's move on. Number three. If you love the African-American community, you should be against abortion. I'm going back to school for a degree in history right now, not to stop pastoring. I, I don't know what I'm going to do with that degree. Um, I don't, but... Um, I'd like to get a, an emphasis in civil rights eventually, and uh, in a recent class on African-American history up to the Civil War, I had to write a paper on the intimate relationship between the, the black American and death, and how death loomed over the black American in a more intimate way than whites. Ever since they were taken from the continent of Africa, forced on a death march, babies being chucked aside and killed, killed on the slave ships on the way over, and then once they got to a plantation, the average lifespan was 10 years. If you became a slave at 22 years old, uh, it was likely you were dead by the time you were in your early 30s. It was an intimate relationship black, uh, for, for the black American. Death hung over them in a way it did not hang over uh, whites. And I had to write a paper on how that was the case then and how that's still the case now and give some examples. And so I gave some examples that I knew my professor would like, like, yeah, yeah, agree with. Um, but then I gave an example that I don't think my professor was very happy about. And that's the top, that was, that was the example of abortion. And how uh, abortion is three times higher for black babies than for white babies. Non-Hispanic blacks are, have been killed three times the rate as non-Hispanic whites since the overturning of Roe v. Wade. That's 20 million black lives stamped out. And so if we claim to be for the African-American community, which many pro-choice folks say they are, to be consistent, we say, well, then I'm against the thing that is taking out black life more than anything else. 20 million lives. We would have 20 million more African Americans in our country right now if it wasn't for abortion. Tom Sargent and I did a series of podcasts a couple years ago. We interviewed, um, it was different justice issues, but one of them was abortion. We interviewed Juan Mendez, who had a black mom and a Puerto Rican dad. Um, he was conceived through rape. His mother was raped. You could watch that on our website, that, that, that interview. Um, and she chose to have him, give birth to him. Uh, he, he ran uh, the, the drug counseling. He was a chaplain uh, down at Keswick. And, um, but we, we asked him, we said, how, you know, why, why, why do you think this is? Why do you think it's so high in, in, in the black community? And you know, he could only speculate some of the same systemic reasons that, that, that keep uh, uh, the black community uh, in poverty at a higher rate than, than whites. It's the same stuff that's, that's causing abortion to be more prevalent. And those things need to be addressed. He said, you know what? We didn't have those pregnancy centers that y'all talk about in our community. Everybody knew how to get an abortion. Nobody knew about these crisis pregnancy centers. Nobody knew that there was going to be somebody who could help them, could help a mother and walk alongside her. We didn't have that. He said, we, we knew exactly where to go to get an abortion. We didn't know how to get help. And so we want to be a church. We want to be a community. We want to be a people that try to get to the, the roots of that, the systemic roots of that. Make sure there's education. Make sure ultrasounds are being made available. Make sure pregnancy centers aren't just in white suburbs, but are also being made available. There's a lot more I can talk about on that, but we want to, if we say 
We love the African-American community. We should be against abortion. Number four, lastly, if you believe the church is called to care for the most vulnerable among us, you should be against abortion. That has been the liberal view. We care for the, the most vulnerable, and there's no group that is more vulnerable than unborn babies. This does not mean we shouldn't care for refugees who are vulnerable. Absolutely. Our church has done that. We've sponsored a refugee family this past year. It doesn't mean we shouldn't care for the poor. Absolutely. We've sent money, lots of money around the world to care for the poor. We've got a team that's been going to uh, Lakewood. We've donated clothes and all kinds of things. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't care for poor communities. We've got a homework club uh, uh, in a community in our town, mentoring and tutoring. Doesn't mean we shouldn't care for the elderly. We've got a team that goes into an assisted living home. But for the unborn, in, in many ways, they are the most vulnerable because nobody can hear their cries. Nobody can hear their screams. We don't see them. And to be unseen and to not have a voice, it's hard to care about them. It's hard to care. Let's admit it. Let's, we have to acknowledge that when there is a distance, when there is a geographic distance or cultural difference, when somebody's out of view of us, it's hard to care. I don't care as much about starving children in Somalia as I do about my neighbor who's dying of cancer at 80 years old. Why? Because there's just a closeness geographically and culturally that is not there with those in Somalia. Until I see a video of a little baby with a swollen belly and it says, this little baby was dead by the next morning, then I care until it's in front of my face. That's human nature, right? That's why the pregnancy center is so big at getting a mother to see the ultrasound so that they can see that this is life, so that you can care. It's hard to care when we don't see, when there's cultural differences. Martin Luther King was brilliant in this. He did demonstrations and marches in areas where he knew there was going to be the most violent blowback so that TV cameras could capture it. And so that those folks in those safe enclaves, those whites who said that they're against but, but aren't really doing anything, would be woken up and say, oh my gosh, this has to be stopped. The march on Selma, Alabama, over the Edmund Pettus Bridge, there was violence rained down on, on the, the, those marchers. TV cameras captured it, sent it around the country, and people said, I got to do something. I got to do something. I got to get in this fight. This photo was popular. It captured an African-American boy being bitten viciously by a police dog. That was put in the papers, sent around the country, and it woke people up. It woke up a slumbering America to what was really going on. They said, I got to get in this fight. There's worse photos than I, that I could show. Emmett Till, many of you know that story. 1955, little boy, Money, Mississippi, brutally murdered. His mother had an open casket funeral and she invited in the press to take a photo of her child's swollen, beaten body so that, that that photo went around the world, not just around the country. And the world said, what is America allowing to happen in the South? And it woke us up. So I would challenge those of you who would say, yeah, abortion, maybe it's not the best choice, but I don't really want to go watch one. Go view one, honestly. Go view one. If it takes it being in front of us to see, oh, that's what's going on. 
go watch one. I challenge you and see if your convictions and your reasoning still holds up. At least go watch the movie Unplanned, which does a great job of depicting what goes on. I'm going to end with this scripture from Zechariah. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. This, this is to Israel. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Those vulnerable groups that don't have a voice, that can't speak up, that don't have much political power, don't oppress them, don't neglect them, don't dismiss them, don't move past them, don't plot evil against them, don't get rid of them because they're inconvenient. Be a voice for them. So at that, I want to play the first testimony, number one of two. Ushers are going to grab the lights. So two months before I turned 17, I got pregnant. And um, my parents wanted me to have an abortion. And my ex, Larry, and myself, we stood our ground. So we, um, with support actually from Open Door Pregnancy Center. But um, yeah, we stood our ground and never regretted a moment. Our daughter is one of our greatest gifts God has given us. Uh, we had a baby girl. Her name is Arielle. She's 33. She's a mom. She's a wife. Um, she's one of God's best gifts he's ever given us. In my early 20s, I found myself pregnant again. Uh, it was a new relationship. We'd only been together for a year. The guilt um, and shame of allowing myself to get pregnant again just uh, was overwhelming and I chose to have an abortion this time. Um, which led to many years of a lot of guilt, a lot of shame. I couldn't talk about it, no one knew. Uh, a few years after having the abortion, I got married to Joe. And uh, as we were starting to add on to our family, I got pregnant and I had a miscarriage. And that miscarriage just brought all the guilt and the shame to the surface again. And uh, yeah, I felt like it was punishment for having the abortion. I was a nutcase. And all, honestly, I was a nutcase. I had a total breakdown. I didn't speak of it for over 20 years. I couldn't get those words out of my mouth. And, um, and one Sunday morning, Cindy Paoselli shared her and Don's story. And that was the first time I was able to say to somebody, I had an abortion too. And part of the healing was just saying it, confessing it to people. And I had to confess. I felt like God was leading me to confess to those who I was afraid was gonna judge me the hardest or see me differently or not love me as much or respect me as much. And that was my children. They were wonderful and loving and kind. And um, it just, it took the power away from the shame, me confessing to them. I don't think I had to confess to have full uh, forgiveness, 
but I had to confess to silence the enemy. I still had a hard time saying the words completely forgiving myself is I can't complete I can't forgive myself is what I would con, I would constantly say until somebody spoke over me a word from the Lord that um, my forgiveness is sufficient. You don't need to forgive yourself because my forgiveness is sufficient. And that was that was the moments of like every chain of guilt and shame and regret fell off. And uh, then it was a new journey. It was a journey of, all right, God, what does your word say? This is um, something you've healed me for. How can I use this? I want to see what you have to say. And what does your word have to say? So it was a journey through his word. And in his word, he showed me that there's life in a woman's womb. Two babies wrestling. Two babies can't wrestle unless there's life. When Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist and Mary was pregnant with Jesus and Mary entered into Elizabeth's home, her, the spirit filled Elizabeth's baby and the baby jumped for joy. There needs to be life for a baby to jump for joy. He showed me that throughout his word, unborn children are never referred to anything other than child, baby, him, her, son, daughter. They're not referred to as cell clumps or unviable cells or, or anything. In the, um, it, he showed me in the New Testament that the word, the Greek word in, used in the New Testament for unborn child and born child are the same. They are the same, whether they're born or unborn, they're the same. Um, in Jeremiah, you know, there's a scripture, God knew you before you were born. He had plans for you before you were born, plans that are good, plans to prosper you. And those are encouraging words. I've gone to those words many times to for encouragement for myself or shared with someone else, but I saw them differently because I saw that he knew every child before they were even conceived. And before they're even conceived, he has plans for them plans that are good for them. And those plans are not only if you're conceived at an opportune time or conceived in love, they are for all who are conceived. I heard a pastor say that God could have sent Jesus any way he wanted. The almighty God has the ability, the power, the might to send his son, Jesus, the Messiah, the savior of the world, any way he wanted. And he chose to send him through conception and have him go through a pregnancy and go through a birth. That's how much he values the life of an unborn child. I'm gonna ask April come down. Cindy Palacelli, who was referenced in that video, would you come down? And a couple other female members of our prayer team, would you come down front to be available for prayer? In a moment, I'm going to encourage, I'm going to bring up the band, and as we sing, I'll invite anyone who wants to be prayed for. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean you have had an abortion, although what did April say? One thing that stood out to me 
from what she said was, uh, I didn't need to confess to another person in order to be forgiven, but that was a big part of my healing journey. Uh, it was a big part of experiencing that forgiveness through the, 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 the church body, through Jesus' hands and feet. Um, so maybe that is you. You've had an abortion in the past. Maybe you're here um, and uh, you have this, this conviction from earlier because you've been, you've been pro-life in your, what you say, um, but you've also been very self-righteous about it. Maybe you need to repent and you just want to say, God, oh, forgive me. Forgive my heart. Maybe, maybe you've been unwilling to actually help, you know, to, to, to be against abortion. We've got to be willing to care for the poor, right? Because there's such an overlap there. I'd be willing to care for somebody who's, who's in financial hardship, scared. Um, so maybe you want to receive prayer. There's a whole bunch of reasons. Maybe you're dating and you just want wisdom. Maybe you want uh, God to give you direction about fostering or adopting. Maybe that's something that's been in your heart and you don't know. So a number of reasons why you can come down and receive prayer. Um, but before we do that, we've got one more video. Um, we're going to show this video. So when I was 18 years old, uh, I was dating a girl. Um, we were getting ready to go to Colorado uh, to start school, college. I got her pregnant. Um, we sat down with our parents and shared with them our concerns about going forward with having a baby and what that would look like and how that would change our futures and redirect our plans. And we decided that that wasn't the direction to go, to have the baby. So that was a decision we made, to, to have an abortion. And it's not one that I would make again or a direction I would choose to go if I had it to do over. I think I was so uh, <laughs> shallow and self-absorbed that, um, you know, it was probably, I don't know, maybe 10 years before it really hit me, you know, when my friends were having kids and, you know, or you're watching my friends' kids grow up and then, you know, I'm realizing, or I was realizing what I was missing out on or by making that decision, I'm not gonna see that or I'm not gonna, experienced that. It hit me even more. I became a believer at the age of 36. I'm 56, so I've been a believer for about 20 years. It, it seems like it hit me more then, like, you know, because I, I was a new believer and I'm thinking, oh man, I took a life. It was my, my own child, you know, but as I grew stronger in the Lord and um, not that it stopped being a struggle for me with the guilt and shame. It, it just wasn't as strong because I knew I was forgiven. But even, even still sometimes, you know, I still, it still bothers me. I often think about um, what life would have looked like had we not made that decision. Um, you know, when you see friends and uh, people that you hang out with that have kids and now have grandkids. And I've never gotten anybody pregnant again. 
Pam and I have been married for 12 years, and um, when when she got when we got married, um, her body was changing enough that having children wasn't going to be an option. So, um, just something we've lived with and look for other opportunities to pour into kids, mission work and nieces and nephews and friends, kids, stuff like that. But advice I would have for those that have gone through this, um, it definitely is freeing to share it. It's definitely worth getting off your chest and sharing openly with people so they can be praying for you and with you and and the bottom line is you're forgiven you know god god forgives our sins i mean this it's 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 our sin nature and it's oftentimes a direction as a, as broken people we choose to go and i know god uh has forgiven me for that decision um, and I cling to that, and I cling to the truth that uh, one day I'll see this child. I'm going to ask Pat and some of the male members of our prayer team to come be available. If you're a member of the prayer team and you need prayer, you get prayed for first, okay? So these guys will be available. We're going to do an extended time of, of worship. Um, again, you've been part of having an abortion. You've been convicted of self-righteousness towards those who have had them. Um, you you, you want to be uh, better about protecting the life of the unborn. You want to take a stronger stance of sponsoring young women. You want to be more involved. You, you, you want to foster. You want to adopt. You want God to make your path clear. How, how do I do this, Lord? Any reason. There can be a myriad of reasons why you might want to be prayed for. But these guys will be available, and I'm going to call the band up. And we are going to sing about God's grace. Because that was, remember, in the very beginning wanted to inspire those of you to remember that God is a gracious God. He's a forgiving God. He's a forgiving God. Can we stand? Jesus, the ultimate goal today is not to win a culture war. It's to point our hearts to you in humility, to be a people who care about what you care about, who want to protect what you want to protect. We know that you're a gracious and forgiving God, but like April's story and Pat's story, sometimes it takes time for us to feel that, to experience that. Sometimes it takes other people in our lives, prayer and conversations. 
So for those who need to experience that today, I pray that they would. I pray that for some who need healing, today would be the beginning of healing. And for some who need to repent of some of their views, that they would repent and change. For some who need to repent of their attitudes or how they go about communicating their right views but with the wrong attitude, that they would repent. Ultimately, Jesus, we're all sinners in need of your grace. And you offer that grace to everybody, all of us. Thank you, Jesus. The ultimate goal is our eyes fixed on you. Let's sing together and come receive prayer if you need it.